This is a Romy cast. This podcast was recorded in February of 2022. get tired of being Beatles. I hear the bass when I play the drums, and I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Take me one. Oh, there we go. Hey, sorry, Jim. We just have a little less guitar in here, Father. Oh, that John finally got just after that, and we could both of us do what we wanted to do. Do what we wanted to do. If you think it was good, keep it. If you don't, scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad, that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanek. Uh, Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guests on this episode are, once again, new wave music stars Martha Johnson and Mark Gain, also known as Martha and the Muffin. Now, this episode is part two of our conversation about the Beatles' amazing 1966 groundbreaking record, Revolver. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I would encourage you to go back and seek that out. You can find it wherever you found this episode of the podcast, including the podcast website, romicast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T, romicast.com. In that episode, uh, I go into a little bit more detail of the Beatles' world around the time that they recorded Revolver, which helps put things a little more into context. And suffice to say, around 1966, the Beatles were becoming more and more of a studio band. Uh, And in fact, this was the last album they recorded before they stopped touring. So they, they recorded this, they went out and toured, Uh, And then that was that. They did not tour anymore. Next album was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and they were, for the rest of their existence, for all intents and purposes, they were a studio band. Now, the website for this podcast, as I mentioned earlier, is romicast.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is the 20th episode of Series 2. Man, where does uh, the time go to grab a cliche? You can find the first 19 episodes of this series, as well as all 15 episodes of Series 1. And I'll have a couple of more episodes in Series 2, and then uh, things are going are gonna to wind up. Uh, if you see fit while you are at the website, could you please make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free? Any donation is much appreciated and your donation does go towards offsetting the costs of the show web hosting advertising some equipment costs I've said before, it's a labor of love for me. It's a hobby. Uh, But if you enjoy the show, please do consider a donation to show your support for the show. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. Not that much. Just click on the donate button on the website if you can afford it and if you'd like to donate. Thanks. Uh, 
Along those lines, big shout out to Craig Simpson for his generous donation recently. Craig is a UK listener. Great to hear from people in the UK. I know we do quite well there, uh, as well as in the United States and very well in Canada for obvious reasons. Um, in my uh, professional life. I was a longtime sports broadcaster in Canada. So that's probably where most people in Canada would know me from. Uh, Many years at TSN and then at Hockey Night in Canada. Always a great music guy lurking in there, though, I can assure you, (laughs) and a big Beatles fan. But uh, Craig said in his note, uh, always a great listen with knowledgeable and passionate people discussing the music they love. So Craig, again, thank you for that and thank you for your donation. If you'd like to make a donation, I'll give you a shout out as well, or you can remain anonymous, your choice, but just visit the website romicast.com if you're interested in donating. Also, if you haven't already, please share the podcast via whatever social media channels you're on. Just a, a quick share on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, TikTok. It helps other Beatles fans find it, and that is the ultimate goal. You want people to listen. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle Romanuk Paul. There is also a Facebook group page. Just do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you'll find it. So most people know Martha and the Muffins, Martha Johnson and Mark Gain as a great 1980s new wave band based out of Toronto who found international success with their 1980 single Echo Beach and also with a top dance track a few years later. It was called Black Stations, White Stations. That was in 1984. It was a hit in Canada and it was a hit in the U.S. as well. It went pretty far up the dance charts, the Billboard dance chart, as I recall. As I mentioned in the last episode, there's much more there than just the hits for Martha and the Muffins. In particular, for me, they did a a trio of records starting with 1981's This Is The Ice Age, then 1983's Dance Park, and followed by 1984's Mystery Walk. They were all produced at the time by an up-and-coming young producer, Daniel Lanois. A trio of albums that, to me, still sparkle with Sonic Adventure. Uh, I said before, they remind me a little bit of of what was to come from Radiohead and uh, Underworld is another band that I really like. They just create these sonic landscapes and and they're so interesting to listen to. Uh, That's what Daniel Lanois and Martha and the Muffins were sort of touching on back then. Now, Lanois, of course, went on to produce some huge global hit albums with U2. He did uh, The Joshua Tree, All That You Can't Leave Behind, Actung Baby, I believe he also did that. And he also worked with Bob Dylan, Sinead O'Connor, Peter Gabriel. He's still a very in-demand, big-name producer. Back then, he wasn't. He was just kind of starting out. So you can go back and catch his early work on those three Martha and the Muffins albums. As this is recorded, Martha and Mark hope to release an album of new material in this calendar year. That's 2022. And in late 2021, they released a collection of reworkings and B-sides called Marthology. You can stream that on all streams streaming services. It's not hard to find. 
You can find out what Martha and Mark are up to if you visit their website, also easy to find, MarthaAndTheMuffins.com. Just MarthaAndTheMuffins.com. Martha is on Twitter. Her handle is MarthaJohnson13. That's Martha Johnson and the number 13. And the band also has pages on Facebook and they have a YouTube channel. So it is my pleasure to uh, welcome the both of you back. Well, thank you. Uh, So, guys, before we get back into Revolver, I'd like to ask you about a couple of tracks on Marthology, the album I mentioned just a few moments ago, both in their own way revisits of your global hit Echo Beach. Uh, The first one I wanted to ask you about, a song called On a Silent Summer Evening. Uh, It it sounds like you've taken elements or stems and and certainly vocals uh, from, or lyrics, I guess, lyrics, vocals, from, uh, from Echo Beach. And you've combined it with some new elements and created a new song. So tell me about that whole process. Well, we were working with a guy named Ed Wilson who I think was doing a lot of programming and stuff for Rush at the time. And um, how that whole thing came about is that there's a German dub label called Echo Beach, which was started by a huge Martin Muffins fan uh, named Nikolai Beverungen. And we he wrote us as a young teenager, I think, years ago as a fan. And then later he started this dub label called, and he called it Echo Beach. And, for reasons I have never been able to quite understand, he's obsessed with the song. And so periodically he gets a bunch of dub artists to do new versions of it. And that, that was the first time he did this. So he said, I'm putting this album out of, and all it is is different versions of Echo Beach. And I don't know whether he suggested or we offered to do a version to put on this dub compilation. So we basically um, dissected, the song. dissected the song, broke it up into parts and Ed Wilson was very good at um, mangling things at that time. That, that was one of the periods where we weren't in the studio that much. So we were working with him and we go, here, we want to do this and that. But a lot of that sound, a lot of the sounds on that cut come from him manipulating stuff. We'll take the lyrics to Echo Beach and extract stuff out of it and never mention Echo Beach. Yeah, Yeah, it worked out pretty well. It was like we took, you know, the handful of lyrics and like smashed them against the wall and then like picked the pieces up and then went, okay, how would the song sound with these pieces, you know? And uh, yeah, it's quite, quite strange. Those are lyrics lyrics that were um, inspired partly by uh, Brian Ferry. Roxy music. Yeah, yeah. I, I've said this before that they're kind of cornball lyrics, and 
um, when I was writing them, I went, well, what would Brian Ferry do? Or what would Noel Coward do? You know, I know it's out of fashion and a trifle and cool. I mean, Mark doesn't talk that long. yeah, like <laughs> who uses the word trifle, you know, and especially in 1980 with the whole punk, you know, post-punk thing going on. But that was deliberate. And that was my, again, that was my Roxy music or Brian Ferry uh, channeling Noel Coward or something, you know. And then later on, we went on to open for Roxy Music in, in uh, the UK. Wow. Yeah, we got to play with We them. never met Brian Ferry, though. <laughs> he never, never came backstage. He was getting kidney stones. Yeah, there's <laughs> so, a whole other story there. Yeah, there's a whole story. <laughs> well, we never met him, but it was open for him. <laughs> And, and then Martha, the you know, also on Marthology, there's that uh, there's the remake of Echo Beach, uh, and you're vocal on that. I mean, just to my ears, um, but it's it sounds like a much more world weary adult vocal. Uh, I mean, is it? And what was it like for you to revisit that song so many years later? Well, I lo- I love that version of the song. It's like another song to me in a way. Uh, I love the, uh, the blending of uh, my voice with uh, Hill Kurkudis, who sang with me on it, and uh, played some played guitar, some guitar, I believe, as well. But uh, it, it just had a whole different, uh, a melancholy and nostalgic feel to it, which is what the song is kind of about. You know, looking back, so sort of looking back at looking back. I know it's out of fashion and a trifle But I can't help it I'm a romantic fool It's a habit of mine To watch the sun go down On Echo Beach I watch the sun go down From nine to five I have to spend my time at work My job is very boring It's a whole different perspective because uh, all all the things that happen to Martha the Muffins and me as a person uh, are put into that vocal, I believe. I think what you said about looking back at looking back was really good. Yeah, I just thought of That's that. That's good. We have to write that one down. <laughs> Jot it down right away. Jot it down right away. Well, uh, dear listener, uh, look for it. It's Marthology. It came out in uh, late 2021. And uh, just, I mean, there's some great tracks on there, but those two alone that I mentioned are are worth the price of admission. Uh, the revisit of Echo Beach with the fantastic new vocal. Uh, and then again, the on a silent summer evening, uh, which is really, really cool, which borrows a little bit from Echo Beach. So look for that. Uh, so side two, let's tear into that and cut one and uh, a nice, couldn't be a brighter song to start it off. Uh, Good Day Sunshine, written in apparently was a very, uh, what was apparently a very hot British summer of 1966. Good day sunshine, good day sunshine, good day sunshine. I need to laugh, and when the sun is out, I've got something I can laugh about. Happy, happy-go-lucky song. 
very upbeat. You know, people play it to, to, to cheer themselves up, I believe. Yeah, I mean, again, he's channeling back to a generation before him. Yeah. You know, the, the whole melody and, the, and that sort of nostalgic piano that doesn't have a lot of top end that sounds like it's coming from another room. You know, like it's all like they're in the parlor, you know, up there in Liverpool. Their uh, harmonies are great. Yeah, the, yeah, the greats. They're really good harmony singers. And and you know, by the standards of the sixties, like pretty cornball lyrics, which they were never afraid to do. Like I, I always thought that was cool that they're. You know, there's another, that other song from, I think, Magical Mystery Tour, Your Mother Should Know, which is right out of this family, too. Like, you could almost do a Beatles compilation album of Paul's parlor-influenced songs, and that would be one of them, too. Um, and, you know, just uh, that's sort of his cheery Paul self there. Yeah. It is what it is, yeah. Uh, McCartney's Recollections, this is from his book, The Lyrics. He says, a lovely summer day once again. I was out at John's house in Weybridge. I'd driven myself there from my home in London in my beautiful Sierra Blue Aston Martin, uh, as, as you do. Uh, he says, uh, <laughs> around that time, there was quite a spate of summer songs. Daydream and Summer in the City by The Love and Spoonful, uh, The Kinks, Sunny Afternoon. I think all those came out during the same year, 1966. We wanted to write something sunny, is what McCartney remembers about it it's george martin with that piano solo uh okay. and it, that's interesting yeah i would have thought Paul, oh, but he but george nailed that feeling really well um and it was on slow tape played back faster and it slightly distorts the sound of the piano was how they got that um, and then here's the time signature thing I was looking for, guys. This is uh, McCartney says, I have talked to classical composers who puzzle over the time signature, but we never laid out the time signature. We just went, it goes like this. It's worth recalling that there was no sheet music to look at. It's quite tricky, but our method was just to listen to a song and learn it. And that was where we came from on those things. It sounds like this. Definitely. Well, it's pattern. It's pattern based, and uh, and we're talking about the earlier one we were, which would had the. Uh, she said. She said. Right. Yeah. She said. She said. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like so, the, the the lyrics are crossing bars, and they're they're basing everything on the the syntax of the uh, of the lyrics. Gaga. Like. And I can, I think probably when you're, we're talking about good days. Yeah, I know, but we're going back a bit okay. there. But when when you, um, we we've done that too. We've had people write us, like we have a song called "Several Styles of Blonde Girls Dancing," which starts off with this guitar part, and people go, "Is that looped?" And I go, "No, that was played." But somebody asked me what time signature it was, <laughs> and I said, "I have no idea," because I think that was a pattern. But I actually sat down, I think it took me a whole afternoon and it ended up being like 17 over eight or, you know, I don't even know, I might even be completely wrong about it, but that's what happens when people who actually know something about music ask you, ask people who are self-taught what it is and you get into these, you just go, hey, we just did it. <laughs> we just did it. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But uh, 
I'm glad we're on side with the Beatles with that, I have to say. So then we go to uh, cut two on side two, and this was uh, primarily a John Lennon song. Uh, the working title was You Don't Get Me, and the final title was And Your Bird Can Sing. say like it's another one where the the brilliant sort of interplay of guitars is there and and like all these interesting changes i mean maybe what bugs you martha is that it's too, it, it it can be too busy sounding you know like there's a lot of guitar stuff going on like and then that and it may be um i'm thinking because when we were listening to it in the car, there were some cuts on this album that seemed a bit too um, mid-rangey. And those parts were really cutting. And it might have been a mixing thing where they were too loud to the vocal track. Mm-hmm. That might be what's... But if they were further back in the mix, it might be less in your face. Well, also, this, this not having the stereo... Well, they had to pre-mix, right? Yeah. So there'd be like a whole drum kit over here. And the here. vocal would be on one side too. We were listening in the car, so it was very distinctive which was coming out of the speaker. But it is very much a John song. The, well, the, the, I mean, the most notable thing you sort of referred to, it's the McCartney and Harrison with that sort of dual guitar medley. <laughs> critic uh ian mcdonald in a book called revolution the head uh, he says uh arpeggiated chromatic passage and a recurring arabesque in parallel thirds played by harrison and mccartney i have no clue what that means they probably wouldn't either <laughs> uh, I, I think i understand some of it but i wouldn't want to you know 
Uh, There'll be a test. Risk my life on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some speculation that Lennon wrote the song in response to Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones boasting about his pop star girlfriend, Marianne Faithful, uh, Bird, of course, uh, yeah, in English yeah. slang. Uh, no, Mark, I, I love the guitar work in this song. I like the sort of the, the going back and forth. Um, Re-listening to some of your work, you cover a lot of ground, uh, your guitar work. And I, I referenced that solo on Women Around the World at Work, uh, the riff on Echo Beach. And on the new album, uh, you've got a, a heavier guitar sound on Big Day, uh, a really cool riff on Fighting the Monster. Uh, all of that in there. Who were your guitar heroes? I was I was trying to figure that out listening to your style. Or, or did you borrow from a bunch, or was there somebody who you said, "That's my guy. I want to play like that." I want you to guess. I'll tell you, but I just like I'd like to hear what you think, just because it would be interesting to see if it's that obvious, which maybe it isn't. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I'm okay, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Robbie, uh, Robert Fripp. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean. Robert Fripp figures into our Martin the Muffins whole mm-hmm. history. He does. He came to see us in New York, which was incredibly intimidating because he sat there like this, like 20 feet off the stage watching us. And I thought, oh my God, I can't handle this. This is my. We weren't even signed yet. No, we weren't signed yet. And then his wife, Toya Wilcox was the first person to cover Echo Beach. So you should check out Robert Robert and uh, Robert Fripp and Toya Wilcox's Sunday, Sunday Lunch. Lunch. If you haven't, you should check that out. It's called their Sunday Lunch. So so, so am I even close then with my guess? Is that a good guess? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, uh, you know, obviously I think there's so many great guitarists, but um uh Hendrix, you know, um Mm-hmm. Adrian Bilu, um, but Fripp above all of them. I was a huge King Crimson fan throughout all of high school. They're sort of apocalyptic, melancholy, suited my can't-get-a-girlfriend persona. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I spent most of my years in high school in a dark place, and their music suited it really well. But I like Fripp's tone. You know, I like that thick dark sound and he wasn't he never i don't think he's ever played a blues riff in his life it's all you know very distinct intervals that don't really feed into the the uh heavy rock thing at all and so i loved his and a lot of it he did backwards stuff on the albums too which i really liked so yeah a very big influence even though you know i like funk guitar a lot um but tonally for sure Fripp cool that's a big cool yeah uh next cut is for no one um and mccartney says it's a song about rejection the breakup or marking the end of a relationship that didn't work uh and he adds that that's always been a rich area to explore in a song your day breaks your mind aches you find that all Linger on when she no longer needs you She wakes up, she makes up She takes her time and doesn't feel She has to hurry, she no longer needs you And in her eyes you see nothing I've been working on a, a project right now the, 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 
um, writing songs with other people um, about break. They're all, all breakup songs. They're all, they're all with younger women who have broken up. Yeah. So this one fits. Could fit into this project. Um, it's called Dazzlefield. It's a project we're working on. For no one, very classical sounding. Subject matter reminds me of she's leaving home. It has that same sense of domestic ennui. Um, you know, another beautiful melody. Nice changes. Uh, very sad. I mean, they, they really know how to mind the emotions. Um, <laughs> and this is one of the songs that does that. Um, but it instantly reminds me of she's leaving home. One of the sort of, yeah, one of those character songs, right? Like he yeah, and yeah. and he loved the uh, she's leaving home. Eleanor Rigby, um, yeah. you know, both he um, uh, the uh, I mean the standout part there, uh, Alan Civil with the French horn solo, fantastic. And the the interesting thing about that, George Martin tells the story. Um, so they had the they had him come in and. They'd written out the score, and I guess he looked at it, and he said, to George, George Martin, I think there's a mistake here. You've got a high F written down. And then George and I said, this is McCartney talking, yeah, and smile back at him. And he knew what we were up to. Uh, and he says, these great players will do it. Even though it's officially off the end of their instrument, they can still do it. And they're quite into it occasionally. It's a nice solo. So I guess he hits a high note that isn't normally heard uh, on the French horn. Now, I don't play the French horn. I don't know whether you hear that when you listen to it. they were always pushing the limits and by doing so you would get you know when I started talking earlier about the guitar sound being re-recorded with the same EQ and it intensifies the resonance of it um, they would do stuff like that and probably some of those experiments were failures but it didn't stop them from and you know getting players to do things that weren't normally in their wheelhouse you know and look at the results they got um, and I also love the, the succinct quality of a lot of these solos, how they were really beautifully composed, but they, and they didn't last long. They were there and they, it was like a passing, you know, yeah, like something that goes by and go, wow, that's beautiful. All the songs are quite short, too. Yeah, the songs are very short yeah. for the most. Now, now you, you touched on the character song thing, and, and Martha, I want to quote yourself back to you uh, along those lines. Um, so, you know, McCartney does the character songs, but he also likes to write about personal experiences. And here's a quote from you. Uh, there are certain things that I think run through a lot of our music. One of them is describing situations. It's a lot about situations situations where you're at not only physically but in your life so can i take from that that you are a i write what i experience writer and not somebody who makes up characters and songs i do quite a bit of the right the autobiographical writing <clears throat> things like uh, paint by number heart in the early days was uh, written about a certain person and he was the only person who, who, who didn't come up to me after after that song was released and say, is that a song about me? Everybody, everybody thought it was about them, except the one guy who it was about. 
but uh, I tended to do that, like dance part, you know, feeling dis disassociated uh, dis from from your environment, and um, you know, black stations, white stations was something we we experienced. Uh, yeah, I, I tried to draw on that. I, I've tried to write songs that are stories, like 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 the Beatles, like Eleanor Rigby or something, or Penny Lane. And it just doesn't come to me easily. I, I write more in feelings and, um, uh, as I say, autobiographical references, something that I'm feeling at the time. Uh, my wife pointed this out last night when we were listening to, uh, to This is the Ice Age, Women Around the World at Work, which I think is your right a song that you wrote, Martha. Martha. Uh, okay, well, it is quite, for its time, it's a real feminist anthem. Yeah, which is why it didn't do better than it did. I think it didn't go top top to the top of the charts. I think it was too much for radio to handle. Oh, there were a lot of things that were too much for radio. <laughs> but but, but what, where did that come from then, Mark? If because I thought that there you go. I thought it was a Martha right because it is. It's a very strong feminist song um, yeah. ahead of its time. feel that they can write and not feel like, oh, I'm 
crossing over to some border where men aren't supposed to write about stuff like that, or you're not supposed to be that sensitive or whatever, you know? Um, maybe there's a lesson in that. Well, women had to disguise their sex to write about things. Yeah, like all those novelists like George Sand. Yeah. George Sand. yeah. Yep. <clears throat> Great song. Uh, and, and there you go. Uh, you learn something every day. And I just, I, I would have, for the reasons you just outlined, I would have said, well, clearly Martha Johnson wrote that song. You know, because it's, it's a well, I guess I sang it convinced, convincingly. <laughs> you did. Yeah, I guess the lyrics and made them your own. Yeah. It's a great vocal. It's a great vocal, great guitar solo, great sax. Um, so we go to uh, the next cut. And uh, this is a song. Uh, it's about, uh, it's about drugs and pills uh, in the yeah, yeah. Dr. Robert. refer more to like the early kind of Beatles riff like it's like uh, which was off uh, Help right there was another song that uses almost that same certainly that same groove um, I'm sure what your loving man can do until oh, I'll cry instead I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah I'll cry instead from Hard Day's yeah, Night and, yeah it's not a oh, hard day's night, right? So it's not quite a Carl Perkins guitar riff, but it's almost. And I don't know whether George plays that riff on uh, Dr. Robert, but it sounds like it could have been. Yes, he does. Yeah, it's, it's George Harrison, double track guitar, uh, and with a bit of uh, sort of sitar and country and Western is how, uh, how he describes it. Yeah, well, that's a perfect description. Um and of course, he one of his big influences, I believe, is Carl Perkins. Um, and then it's all about the drugs and this. You know, I guess he was supplying them with a lot of psychedelic uh, <laughs> material. McCartney says um, in an interview in '67, uh, "There's some guy in New York, and in the states, we'd hear people say you can get everything off him, any pills you want. It was a big racket, but a joke too about this fellow who cured everyone of everything with all these pills and tranquilizers, injections for this and that. Uh, he just kept New York high. That's what Doctor Robert is all about—just a pill doctor who uh, sees you all right. So that's." Yeah. Uh, with a certain tongue and cheek uh, approach to this song, the whole "well, well, well, you're feeling fine." And <laughs> now, pills and drugs. But uh, I've got to ask you. Um, I mean, was it much a part of the scene in the late '70s and early '80s in the music scene in Toronto? Well, not for the band. The band wasn't really into drugs, but the crew were. <laughs> the club owners would come up to us after the show and say, "Got some stuff for you." And uh, we say, oh, can we get the crew to come in here? Because they're the ones that are, who are interested in this. And there were, there were some clubs that were clearly owned by, you know, gangsters. And, you know, they come and dump a mountain of cocaine 
on the table and expect us to be really excited about it. And <laughs> no. I mean, you, you did LSD a couple of times. Well, that was when I was 18. Way younger. And, you know, I never did it anything. It was a big mistake. <laughs> it was a big, apparently, but uh, I never did anything heavy like that. I, Cause I was terrified of re-rank. Like I thought the world looks weird enough through my eyes now. Like I really don't. And the, the ability to not control it. Yeah, well, that was the thing for me. Or that you were supposed to trust some dealer, you know, like, I don't know this guy. He's not my friend. He wants my money. Um, so, yes, there was, but we were not much of a druggy band at all. You know, we're, we're just like suburban kids, that, you know, although lots of suburban kids were we'll doing We to our college, yeah, but, some, some of them. Um, it was too weird anyway for me. I don't know. It felt... I didn't want to let go like that. It, it, it's interesting because I've talked to, to, to different artists about, uh, I mean, the, the Beatles famously, uh, when they got into to LSD, completely changed their perception of the world and they saw different colors and heard different sounds. And I mean, you saw that in, there's a couple tracks, one we're going to get to on this album. And then of course, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And then I've had other musicians say, I don't think I could write or play anything in that frame of mind. Yeah, it seems to be divided in terms of personality because I know, I believe Patti Smith never took drugs. And, no. you know, you can imagine like in the New York punk scene at, at uh, CDGB's, like I'm sure, you know, with Lou Reed and everybody. And she know, and I think some people just feel that they can't handle it. And like after a certain point, you know, marijuana didn't, I was never that into it, but at first it seemed really interesting. And then in the end, it just started making me paranoid. And I went to uh, the Ontario College of Art where I took painting and experimental music. And I remember one point getting stoned and sitting around with a bunch of other people stoned, watching one of the paintings dry and going, this is great. And then an hour later, you're going, this is total crap. Like, what was I thinking? So, you know, it depends on the person. Like, you know, in reggae, I think, you know, you, you'd have, a lot of people got really stoned. And I personally just could not handle it. I wouldn't know what I was doing. Or else I would think what I was doing was great when it was you know, but it's a personal thing, obviously. So uh, just before we move on to the next track, uh, an unprecedented third George Harrison track on a Beatles album, by the way, the only album on which he had more tracks was the White Album. Of course, a double album. He had four on there. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to take a quick moment to talk to any musicians or artists out there uh, or people who manage artists or musicians uh let me pitch this at you how would you like a custom podcast like this one so in the style of the walrus was paul podcast in support of either an old album or maybe a new album that's about to come out Uh, what we do is we go through your album new or old track by track just like we do beatles albums on this podcast and then you can use the podcast to promote your work the way that you'd like it to be promoted because you'll be on there talking about your music, your tracks. You can use it on social channels or even as a special bonus to send to your fans or patrons if you go that route. If that sounds like an idea that might interest you, then get in touch with me via my website, romicast.com, and we can take it from there. Also, uh, if you're enjoying this episode, you might also enjoy episode 9 from series 1 on which Bare Naked Ladies drummer Tyler Stewart gives his takes on Revolver. 
You can find that episode and all the others from Series 1 and 2 at my website, romicast.com. So let's get back into uh, side two of Revolver. And up next, as mentioned, another George Harrison track that starts off with that cool fade-up, I Want to Tell You. talked about uh the weird sort of jarring chord at the end of every line uh harrison said that's an e seventh with an f on top played in the piano says i'm really proud of that as i literally invented that chord john later borrowed it on i want you she's so heavy um okay. so. well it'd be interesting what you know compose like classical composers because there's something weird called a tritone and i can't remember what the definition is the way three tones are arranged and they're they're clashy maybe this is a tritone i'm not sure but but it was arresting, and the song's quite catchy. I mean, it's... Uh, well, and the drug thing comes into this, uh, because Harrison says it's from his experience of taking LSD. His quote is, My brain and my consciousness and my awareness were pushed so far out that the only way I can begin to describe it is like an astronaut on the moon or in his spaceship looking back at the Earth. I was looking back to the Earth from my awareness is what he was trying to get to. Um, so, yeah, uh, influence on this. Now, uh, 
in, in some ways with George Harrison, it became evident later in his life that he wasn't particularly cut out for being a pop star or he, he expressed that in his art at times. Now, I found a couple of quotes from you guys and, and I love quoting back to my guests their own words. But uh, <laughs> Martha, you said at one point, Mark and I were both kind of misfits in our youth. Uh, we were not your typical cheerleader or frat boy types. We both were dreamers and stared out the window during school and had to be told to concentrate. We always felt alienated as children and as teenagers like not fitting in and not really wanting to when you discover that a lot came out of being solitary and then mark a quote i found from you i've always felt the alienation many people feel in modern society Uh, i've never felt like i was part of the modern world i think that i would have been quite happier living in the 19th century as a landscape architect or something when i hit school and got the shit kicked out of me for the first time, even on a subliminal level. As a little child, I was going, you know, I think I get the drift here that I'm not going to fit in. And from then on, it started obviously informing everything I did. That sounds to me like a couple of people who love what they do, but wouldn't mind just kind of doing it without all the bother. Without all the bother. Am I accurate there? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're very accurate there. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting hearing what we said because I think it's very true still. We weren't lying. No. <laughs> I yeah, it's uh, well. That's how many bands you know uh, have people in them that had that same experience, and maybe even more in the UK where the whole school system sort of weeded. They had you uh, figured out at an early age, and anybody who wasn't going into accounting or business got thrown into art school which at that time were like factories for, you know, incipient rock bands. <laughs> but I think a lot, 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 lot of what we do musically is, is, is from that to not fitting in. Well, yeah, and I think even at the height of Echo Beach, like, I mean, you, you had your own take on it, but it was something, it was really exciting, but at the same time, um, it was kind of upsetting to be the center of attention like that. Invasive. Um, and during when, whenever we had a song that got like a lot of video coverage, like black stations, we'd be, you know, in a department store in downtown Toronto being trailed by schoolgirls like that would never come up to you, but they they'd shadow you, you know, and or you'd be coming up, you know, from shopping and have a roll of toilet paper under your arm and then be all these schoolgirls like would be around you and you'd be going, man, I don't know. Shoveling the walk. <laughs> you know, it, it, it just felt. And so. You know, there's bands and artists that have had way more success than we have, but I honestly don't know how they handle not being able to walk out their front door. Like, there's something about not having that level of uh, exposure where you can be yourself. And it, uh, and in celebrity culture, I think it actually really ruins a lot of people. You know, they can't do what they they can't be free anymore. Uh, I, I mean, we're really lucky that we have done what we wanted to do for most of our lives and still and be, and been free yeah. to do whatever we wanted watching, to do. Watching people like Billie Eilish and Adele, you know, people who have gone from zero to and they're, and they're so talented and then you can see the weight of all this stuff coming down on yeah. them, you know. Um, it's got to change people, I think. Yeah, definitely. Certainly, it, 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 that was a recurring theme with George Harrison's work, for sure. Um, was, yeah, he just into, into the music, right? Yeah, yeah. Quiet music. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, got to get you into my life. Uh, great 
Well, I mean, it, it's it's such an homage to Motown to me. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. Ooh, then I suddenly see you. Ooh, did I tell you I need you every single day of my life? For me, this always conjured up a picture of like swinging London. There was something about that horn line, but, 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 you know, and everybody's going down to Carnaby Street and buying, you know, bell bottoms and wearing some crazy furry collared thing, you know, with a lot of polka dots. And um, it's very much of its time. Uh, and again, like the, the great moment in that song is near the end where it breaks for that guitar riff, which you only hear there. just great but you only hear that guitar riff once you know and when you get familiar with the song you're going oh i can't wait for the band to stop and that comes in and then it, you know then they're off to the races that, again that's what i find amazing is to all these songs the, the little nuances in the songs you remember from your basically 50 years ago well they're embedded in your dna yeah. you know, for sure uh great little brass section three trumpets two tenor saxes and uh, the, the interesting engineering thing here is uh, they put the mics, or Jeff Emmerich did, right down into the bells of the instruments. Uh, mm-hmm. And then really heavy compression. So it gives them that, yeah. that sound. Yeah, they were kind of pioneers in terms of um, using very extreme compression settings, like brick walling it, you know, and getting distortion effects by pushing, you know, preamps and then, and then using a compressor. I mean, all sorts of tricks. Uh, the song was, according to McCartney, this song is my ode to pot. he says uh, many years later I told people what it was about uh, but when we made the record it was just I was alone I took a ride I didn't know what I'd find there it was very joyous at the time uh, but it was uh, yeah they just started taking pot and got to get you into my life was it was his own pot (laughs) they got to thank Bob Dylan for that apparently So then we come to the the last song on the album, uh, and which was the first song that they started working on for the album. And I mean, just a, um, I, I can't imagine what this would have sounded like to people in 1966. What a mind blowing, monumental track that didn't sound like anything else. What does it sound like to you? Revolutionary. Um, it, 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 oh, 
I don't even know where to begin. You know, that it's just where to start with this one. Um, as we said earlier, all the influence of mid 20th century avant-garde composition, all those techniques, those radical techniques with the technology of the time and the, and the different approaches to using conventional instruments and everything went into this song. It's like everything that was going on then just became like the focal point of this song. And, um, all those tape loops that Paul was making at home, bringing them in and, uh, the backwards stuff and, and, uh, Lennon's, you know, vocals going through a Leslie cabinet, all that stuff. And that great, I don't know if this is unique to Ringo because I don't think I've heard any other drummer go boom, gak, boom, gak. It's such a great, it's so not rock. I don't know even know where that came from. Um, there's another Beatles song where he uses that same pattern. I thought I would remember. I can't right now. But anyway, brilliant, brilliant drumming. Um, I, I wonder whether um, um, George Martin used uh, drugs. Because it all seems like they came in with all their drug influences. And then he would take it and, and put it into a, a song, like an arrangement. Maybe he was uh, the one still on, on his feet. <laughs> McCartney tells the story uh, that uh, they played it for George Martin, uh, the, and the, the song's harmony was mainly restricted to the chord of C, and George Martin sort of listened to it and nodded and said, hmm, rather interesting. Uh, and, and then he helped them. The, the song's harmonic structure is derived from Indian music and is based upon a high-volume C drone, which is played by Harrison on a tambura. And then the chord over the drone is usually a C major, but sometimes changes to a B flat major. Uh, but And then it's the loops, the highly compressed drums. I think the song you might be thinking about, Mark, which was a, almost a bit of a dress rehearsal, for this uh, was uh, Rain, his drumming in the song Rain. Well, maybe. I was, I think I was thinking something else, which I'll probably remember the minute we end this. <laughs> but it could have been Rain, yeah, possibly. Um, I'll have to listen to Rain again just to see if that's the case. But um, yeah, I would think that uh, this might have been stretching even. Uh, George Martin, although, you know, look at what happened with Sergeant Pepper. So, I mean, his gift to the Beatles was he wasn't saying, this is outrageous and I'm, I'll have nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Bad boy. Yeah, luckily he had everything to do with it. And um, again, you know, I think they were still using four tracks at this point. So it's pretty incredible to have that kind of sonic collage happening on four tracks. I mean, I know they did pre-mixes and stuff, but well, they, they had the tape loops, uh, which were played on uh, BTR3 tape machines located in the various studios. Uh, and each machine was monitored by one technician who had to hold a pencil within each loop to maintain the tension on the loop. And then the four Beatles 
were on the faders of the mixing console while Martin varied the stereo panning and Emmerich watched the meters. So it, it, it was very much a live performance that wasn't ever going yeah. to be the same twice, which strikes me as just remarkable. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of how we used to work in, in the studio with Dan Lanois. You know, we would all have our hands all over the faders and you know, cueing when to uh, bring your part in. And so it was fun to, to mix the song. Yeah, and it was a lot of live stuff. Like uh, the solo in the middle of Black Stations, White Stations, is very much like what we're talking about in, in uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. Uh, because one of us was like playing chosen notes while the other was changing the settings on the synthesizer as so we go from like trumpets to something really quickly. And then Dan was over at his um, rack doing, uh, I think, a prime time delay changing the speed, which would be like a change in tape speed, all simultaneously. And we would go, is that a good one? We go, no, we can do better. So we'd erase that and, and we would do it live again until we got the one that you hear in the middle of black stations, white stations. But that was all live. Are on our sleeves. <laughs> well, it, this this was a Brian Eno song before there was Brian Eno. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, a lot. Uh, Brian gets a lot of credit for stuff which he, in some cases, deserves. But he comes out of a definitely comes out of a continuum. And also, Delia Derbyshire was doing a very similar thing when she uh, arranged the Doctor Who. Theme. She didn't write it, but she was asked to arrange it, and she had tape recorders all lined up, and assistants would press them on at certain points to get different notes, and uh, they were all... Tell about the film, the... Um, oh, Sisters Sis with Sisters, Transistors. Sisters yeah. with Transistors. There's a really good documentary, if you haven't seen it, called Sisters with Transistors, which is all about the unsung women pioneers of electronic music. And uh, Delia Derbyshire was one of them, but there was a lot of them. And Paul McCartney actually visited her in her studio. Um, there were a lot of people that went and checked her out because she was doing such interesting stuff. But uh, this is the climate we're talking about in London and Europe, where all this stuff was going on. And the Beatles in this one song absorbed and interpreted it in their own Beatley way. And yeah, this one song sort of encapsulates the whole thing. It's an inc absolutely brilliant. Incredible song of, you know, the, the tape loops. Um, and, you know, famously, Leonard wanted to, he wanted to sound like, uh, you know, monks singing from the mountaintops. And George Martin helped him recreate that by putting his oh, voice yeah. through a, a Leslie speaker and all. Uh, George Harrison, many years later, um, Harrison questioned whether Lennon fully understood the meaning of the song's lyrics, which were based on the, the Timothy Leary, uh, you know, Tibetan, Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, Harrison said, I'm not too sure if John actually fully understood what he was saying. He knew he was onto something when he saw those words and turned them into a song, but to have experienced what the lyrics in that song are actually about, I don't know if he fully understood it. So. <laughs> and, I, and you know what? And I don't think you need to. This is where there's like a lot of magic 
in creative work is that, you know, there's that tendency to have to explain everything. Yeah. And sometimes you just go, hey, it's a feel thing. If you're feeling something, here it is. Yeah, we love, we love it when our fans tell us what a song, song meant to them. Yeah, and it gives it a whole new... Um, New, uh, new twist or they completely misinterpret it in a really great way, way. <laughs> <laughs> well i'll ask you about one more of your songs uh before i i i, I uh i wrap this up um but this this is a very atmospheric song and a very sort of droney song and another one of your songs it's actually one of my favorite <clears throat> it's a, a song called jets seem slower in london skies that kind of goes along, very atmospheric. I don't think it changes tone all that much. Where no. did that come from? Who came up with the piano part? Why did you put it where you did in the album? It's such a fascinating little snippet. I love it. about Ice Age was it was about the breakup of the first band and the beginning of a new, not necessarily with everybody, but it, the, the band, Echo Beach basically was great, but it destroyed the first version of Martha and the Muffins because everybody reacted to the fame differently. And some people were quite sensible about it and others weren't. And uh, I remember wandering around London when all of this seemed to be falling apart. and. I think when you're in a moment of big, of great grief and, up, and being upset, you see things, things come through a filter that isn't necessarily there when you're feeling more normal and more stable and more grounded. And I, and I spent a week wandering around London and I remember looking up at the sky and I guess these planes are coming into Heathrow or wherever, and the jumbo jets, and I'm like, they seem like, and it's like this if you, actually, if you do look at a jetliner, they never seem to be going fast enough. You know, up in the air, they're like, why isn't that thing dropping out of the sky? It's too big and it's too slow. And I just had that phrase, like, jets seem slower in London skies. And rather than, you know, to elaborate on what that meant, because I don't think I knew what it meant at the time. It was a metaphor for the strangeness of seeing things under grieving circumstances. So I left it at that, and uh, I think that ends the first side of Ice Age, if I remember. So it seemed to be like a, a pause, you know, like a bookend for the, for the first side and a pause as we go into This is the Ice Age, which is sort of the epic song but it was like a little breathing a little melancholy breathing thing um it was all you it was yeah i played the piano even though i don't know how to play piano i remember struggling through it and swearing and you know trying to do it get through a tape without blowing it but i for some reason i wanted to do it myself um it's a great song it's a it's very evocative of the whole album you know it just seems to it's got a real mood yeah it has a mood um, it is. It's. It's. Uh, I love it. Um, uh, nice to hear. Just as an aside, uh, when we lived in London, we lived in Battersea, which is right in the Heathrow flight path, and I would oh, okay. I would sit outside and I would watch the jets coming in, and I always had this song playing in my mind. Oh, that's oh, great! That's See, great. I, this is what I love. I love hearing stories like that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. 
Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about uh, cover art. Now, first of all, the title. Um, the Beatles did have trouble settling on a name for the album. Their original idea was Abracadabra, although that was later uh, discarded. And just for clarification purposes in the Beatles world, uh, revolver did not mean a gun, uh, but rather the other meaning of the word, something that revolves, turns around like a record. Um, Johnny Dean, editor of Beatles Monthly, uh, wrote about it. He was apparently with them on the night of 24 June 1966 in a Munich hotel room when they came up with the final title for the album. At first, all four had wanted to call it Abracadabra, but someone had already used that for an album. Uh, and then they kicked around some other ideas. Ringo suggested having a joke with the Rolling Stones and calling it After Geography uh, because the Stones had just done an album called Aftermath. So <laughs> After Geography, Aftermath, there you go. Uh, Scouse humor. Uh, John proposed Beatles on Safari and Paul came up with Magic Circle and then John changed his to Four Sides of the Circle uh, and then Four Sides of the Eternal Triangle, which evolved into Revolver. So that's how they came up with it. And that is uh, according to Johnny Dean, the editor of Beatles Monthly. And I read that story in Barry Miles' book many years from now. As for the artwork, so the black and white artwork was by Klaus Vormann, a musician and artist whom the Beatles were friends with going back to their Hamburg days. And it was made up partly of pen drawings with collage sections, including photos that had been taken by Robert Whitaker and Robert Freeman, uh, two photographers who they knew well. Whitaker also took the photograph on the back of the LP. Uh, Paul McCartney recalled in the Beatles anthology, we were all very pleased with it. We liked the way there were little things coming out of people's ears and how he'd collage things on a small scale while the drawings were on a big scale. And he also knew us well enough to capture us rather beautifully in the drawings. We were flattered. That's Paul McCartney from Beatles anthology. Uh, Klaus Vorman a very good musician in his own right as well as an artist still with us as I record this at the ripe old age of 83 uh, he played bass in Manfred Mann uh, on several of John Lennon's albums including John Lennon Plastic Ono Band where he was the rhythm section with Ringo he played with Ringo and George Harrison on their albums uh, Harry Nilsson Carly Simon so a, a great musician in his own right now you guys as far as your cover art goes I mean being, you know, art students from the Ontario College of Art, uh, I'm assuming you were pretty hands-on. I mean, is that right? You're pretty hands-on as far as your, your covers go? Totally. Yeah, totally. Uh, the Metro Music, I, I can't remember anymore where that idea came from, but it was our, we would basically take those ideas to Peter Savile and uh, we go, here, we want to use an ordinance survey map. We had to get permission from the Ontario Provincial, you know, whatever authority had over the mat. And, and, but he would, he did the, you know, the border and took the typeface and he was really good at typography. Um, Transcendence uh, was a Martha Ladley painting of me naked. Um, that's how skinny I was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we decided that would be, you know, it looked trancy and dancy, so we used that. And then Ice Age was a photograph I took from the window of my Bloor Street apartment, which is the main street 
east-west street in Toronto of the buildings across the street, that weird white part where the wall had fallen with the, the, the Bank of Montreal Tower. And I did that. I took about four rolls of film at various times of day for about a period of a week or two weeks. I had a camera on a tripod in the window and I would wake up at 3 a.m. or sunrise, sunset. So I had all these views of the same scene. So the front of cover is uh, dusk and the back one is dawn. Um, but there were many more. The and dance park was one of your more interesting. Well, dance park was a model I made of, uh, I built a model of a park, of a park, like a park in my head, right? Using little trees and stuff. And for um, a year or two, it hung uh, in the back porch of that same apartment that I took the Ice Age one. And the day we moved, it was like a long day. We were moving up the street to a house we were renting. And we moved everything. I picked the model up off the wall. And I was walking down the three stories of stairs down the back of the apartment. And all the trees started falling out. I went, oh, fuck this. I've had it. And it was a dumpster, and I just threw it into the dumpster, which without, I... Without asking me. Yeah, I, I really regret that. Like, I really, really, really wish I had that now. Because it was about this, was, I think, two or three feet by three, you know, square. Two by two, three by three. And I worked really hard on it. I and I, I went outside to get natural light and took it from a bunch of angles. And, you know, we picked the ones we did. But that was... Uh, there's a few dumb things I've yeah. done in my life. I've auctioned it, possibly. <laughs> oh, probably. probably. So, millions. Uh, uh, so, uh, guys, uh, I mean, I can't thank you enough for the generosity of your time. Well, it went way longer than I thought we would. Can, can I just ask you, uh, you know, Mark and Martha, if, if each of you, your sort of final thoughts uh, from our conversation, your takeaway on Revolver, on what we've been talking about for the last couple of hours. Uh, what uh, what do you take away from all this? Well, first of all, thank you for talking with us and inviting us to do this. It's been a pleasure and we've enjoyed it a lot. And also how all things happen in a continuum. You know, when I say, I, w I think, you know, deep listening is a, is a fairly recent Term. Somebody's hungry. Um, but I was deep listening <laughs> to Revolver even before I knew what deep listening was, and I had no idea how it was going to affect everything that I brought to Martha and Muffins, and it continues to do so. I thought it was really interesting to, to, to discuss the Beatles with our music and to draw some, some uh, similarities in style and, and how we write and things like that. I think. When you, the Beatles was such an influence on me as a, as a you know, young woman, young young performer, young songwriter. That it's very very interesting to see it from that from that angle. And also the stories you've told us. Like yeah, there's really been a lot of really elim yeah, uh, illuminating lots. things. Yeah. It's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much uh, again for the generosity of your time and uh, and sharing some great stories and talking about uh, some music that I, two albums that I really love. Uh, that, that was really good. Um, so thank you.
Well, well, thank you. What a pleasure that was. Uh, as you could probably tell, I've been a big admirer of their work over the years, and it was cool to talk to them both. Uh, I also uh, <laughs> I enjoyed the cameo appearance by their granddaughter uh, near the end of our chat. I don't know if you, you'd be hard to miss, but I'm assuming you picked up on it when Mark was kind of summarizing his thoughts, and you could hear the, uh, the baby going off there in the background. I thought that was cute. Uh, always interested to know what you think. What are your thoughts on our thoughts regarding Revolver? You can join the conversation in several ways uh, on the episode page for this podcast on my website. Might be the easiest. You go to romicast.com, find the podcast page. Each episode of The Walrus with Paul has its own page. So you go there and there's a comment section at the bottom and you can chime in there. That is one way. We can also interact on Twitter or Instagram if you prefer. Uh, Romanuk Paul is the handle on both. And of course, there's Facebook. Just do a search on Facebook for The Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you can leave a comment there. Up next on The Walrus Was Paul, I speak with singer-songwriter Jerry Legere about one of the North American Beatles albums and one that is very near and dear to his heart, 1965's Beatles 6. Like, this is my childhood for me. That, like, I, it just brings me back certain songs, right? They bring you back to being that little kid, you know, and, and, uh, it's a comforting record. If I'm having like a bad day, I'm having a bad morning or something like I need comfort. This is one of the records that goes on. This is a very comforting album for me. That's singer songwriter, Jerry Legere. Next time on the walrus was Paul until then you take care. Tired of being Beatles. I came here uh, when I played the drums. I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar.